0: We come now, brethren, to the preaching of God's Word, and I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. We're going to look at several portions of Scripture this morning. I encourage you to follow along and read along with me silently, or read along silently as I read aloud. The book of Hebrews, I want to begin in chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 3 verses 1 through 3. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Here the writer of Hebrews proclaims, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself." Then turn if you would please to Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, I want to read verses 14 through 16. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 14 through 16. Here the writer declares our rights. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who is in every respect and has been, in every respect, tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need." And then turn, if you would please, to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we ask now that you would bless our time under the preaching of your word. We would ask for the work of the Holy Spirit that He would do that work that only He as the Sovereign Spirit can do, that He would open our eyes to understand Your Word, that He would apply it to our own thinking and our own lives in such a way that Jesus Christ is magnified and exalted in our midst today. For we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, brethren, we are beginning a new sermon series and to continue in our commitment to being Christ-centered in our pulpit ministry here at Sovereign Grace Baptist Church, I've decided to lead us through a series in the book of Hebrews, which is in essence a lengthy sermon on the superiority of Christ. In fact, in our recent study through the book of 1 Peter, we considered how Christ and His obedience is at the very center of our redemption and how His faithfulness under suffering serves as an example to us of how we should endure faithfully under suffering as well. And now we will consider for some months to come, Lord willing, the superiority of Christ. The superiority of Christ, for Christ is superior to those religious types and shadows that merely pointed back to Him in the Old Testament. Christ is clearly superior to any spokesman, any representative who came to show us the way that God deals with his people. For in writing primarily to a Hebrew audience which was struggling against great persecution and which was being tempted to leave Christianity and return to ancient Judaism, the author of this epistle makes a powerful and persuasive case that, Jesus Christ is not only superior in His person, in His role as God's perfect and final mediator, but that the redemption that Christ purchased for His people is also superior. It is far greater than any kind of deliverance that God's people could have sought after or openly desired. For Christ's redemption is not established upon a breakable, transgressible covenant But it is grounded eternally in the decree of God and upon the merits of Christ's spotless blood which was shed in obedience to God the Father and applied for the benefit of his elect. So here in this epistle we are presented with more than just an appeal to hold fast. It is an appeal to hold fast. We'll talk about that in the weeks to come. But it's more than that. We are also presented with... Primarily, with a vivid and victorious portrait of Jesus Christ as one that we should be coming to, as one that we should be confessing, as one that we should be considering and clinging to as we live by faith, as we face the trials and even the sufferings that have been appointed for us in this life. In fact, in this introduction to the book of Hebrews this morning, I'm not going to focus deeply on the type of data that you would typically hear in an introduction to a book. Data like the question of authorship or what year that scholars believe that the book was written in or what the specific occasion of the writing was because I believe that you as God's people can research and search out those kinds of answers for yourselves. In fact, you are more than capable of studying God's Word. You are more than capable of coming to a realization of that information, although I will say that I am convinced just in passing here that the epistle to the Hebrews is actually A sermon. It is actually a sermon. In fact, the writer of this epistle refers to his work in chapter 13, in verse 22, as a word of exhortation. A word of exhortation, which many scholars interpret as a technical term or phrase referring to an address or a speech such as what would be given or delivered in a synagogue. And I want you to take note of that this morning, what would be delivered or addressed in a synagogue, because we'll come back to that in just a moment. Furthermore, when you study the overall structure of this epistle, you will notice that it is actually arranged and organized like a sermon would be. Throughout this epistle there are careful theological propositions delivered by the author followed by stirring and searching applications and then calls to immediate action, calls to immediate action just like an effective sermon would be structured. Then lastly, and I would point this out this morning, that the major themes of this epistle are the same. As those that the Apostle Paul preached in the synagogues. The major themes of this epistle are the same as those that the Apostle Paul preached in the synagogues. In fact, you may remember from your study of the book of Acts and the 20th chapter, excuse me, the 20th verse of, of chapter 9, it says that Paul went from synagogue to synagogue preaching Jesus Christ out of the Old Testament scriptures, preaching how Christ was superior. So what we could have here in this epistle is the content of what Paul preached from the Old Testament regarding Christ as he went from synagogue to synagogue, which was written down by him or by someone else. I think that's important to consider that information as we go through here because time and time again I think we'll see hints that that is in fact what this epistle is. But again my purpose this morning is not to dive into technical questions surrounding this epistle which can be found in a a good commentary and by the way if you're looking for a good commentary that you can read and study while we're working our way through the book of Hebrews, then please see me and I'll be glad to recommend some commentaries for you to study along. I I want you to get into God's Word as well as we go through this book together. But rather my main purpose is to introduce to you this morning, to to highlight to you very briefly The Christ centeredness of this epistle. In fact, that's really my goal this morning. The Christ centeredness of this epistle. And I think the more we see the Christ centeredness of this epistle, the more we will recognize that it is indeed not just a theological treatise, but it is a sermon about Christ. A sermon. About Christ. And I want to do so by focusing on three powerful texts from this epistle that I read to you earlier Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, and Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. For these texts clearly demonstrate how the author of this epistle points again and again to the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, you'll see that as the writer progresses in this particular epistle, as he moves on to theological theme, one theme after another, he always brings it back to the person of Jesus Christ. And if we miss this, if we just focus on the different themes that arise in the book and we neglect to notice how often the author brings us back to Christ, how often the author holds out Christ as the centerpiece of God's redemptive plan and purposes for us, then we we fail to see, we we fail to identify the, the true heart and the true intention of this great epistle. And so let us focus, let us consider briefly the Christ-centered appeals that the writer makes in three, these three texts as a way of of setting the stage and the context for this epistle this morning, and then we'll deal more extensively, more exhaustively with these three texts as we continue verse by verse in this new series through the book of Hebrews. And therefore, let us begin with Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And again, let me read it again. Therefore, holy brothers... You who desire to share in the heavenly calling, or those who do share in the heavenly calling, consider who? Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses, who was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more honor than Moses, as much more glory has the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. Why is this portion of Scripture so significant? Why point to this passage in our introduction? Well, it's significant. It's important for two reasons. First, it's significant because it introduces us effectively to the kind of appeals that are made throughout the book of Hebrews regarding Christ. For all throughout this epistle, the author not only presents Christ directly and without apology as God's Son, as the heir of all things, as the radiance of the glory of God, as he does in Hebrews 1, verses 2 and 3, but he also presents him by means of contrast and careful comparison. In fact, throughout this epistle, you'll see it again and again, that the writer contrasts or compares Jesus Christ to other things and other people and it's for a purpose. In fact throughout the pages of this book the the writer contrasts and compares Jesus in a variety of ways to everything the Hebrews held to be sacred and dear. What do you think about that? To everything the Hebrews held to be sacred and dear, whether it be the Old Testament prophets, whether it be the angelic beings, whether it be God's servant Moses, whether it be the Old Testament priests, whether it be the ceremonies and sacrifices of the Old Testament ceremonial system, all of those things are compared and contrasted to Jesus Christ. And in each and every instance of contrast and comparison, the author of this book demonstrates that Jesus is superior to them all, and superior not only in terms of his superior person being the Son of God, but also with respect to his works and his merits as well. And, of course, in this portion of Hebrews chapter 3, the writer contrasts Jesus to God's servant Moses, who was held in the highest esteem by the Jews as God's servant and lawgiver. In fact, we're not Jews here this morning, so we really don't understand, we don't really have a full grasp of how important Moses was to the Jewish mindset, to the Jewish religion, to Judaism. In the mind of most Jews, Moses was the caretaker, Moses was the protector of their faith Moses was as the Hebrew writer states the steward of God's household in the Old Testament. I mean there was not a more important one than Moses. And yet the writer of Hebrews wants the Jews to see he he would have us to see that Jesus is far superior to any steward over God's household. That's all Moses was. Was a steward. For Jesus is not a steward, Jesus is the builder of the house. Jesus is the one who appointed Moses, seeing that Moses was just the servant or the steward of Christ. In fact, in presenting Jesus here in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 3, the writer bids us to consider Jesus as the apostle and the high priest of our confession. Think of those titles for a moment, Apostle and High Priest of our Confession, which gives Jesus far more power, far more stature, far more authority than Moses ever possessed or Moses ever exercised. And of course, in the coming weeks, we will openly address what these particular offices that Jesus possessed actually mean. And I think we'll be deeply impressed when we read of these offices and how Jesus fulfills them. Then secondly, this portion of Hebrews chapter 3 and especially this phrase in verse 1, consider Jesus is significant because it introduces a theme that runs throughout the entire book. A theme that runs throughout the entire book and that is our need to carefully weigh, to carefully consider the true significance of who Jesus is. In fact, again and again we're going to be asked to do that. We're going to be asked to pause and really thoughtfully consider who Jesus is. For the writer of this epistle is not presenting Jesus as he would just any person of interest or as he would just any person of religious interest, but rather he is setting before us divine truths and insights about Christ which should be received and heard with utmost seriousness. They must be considered as one would consider matters of life and death. Matters of life and death. For to consider Jesus rightly is to be confronted with who Jesus really is. Here in verses 1 through 3 of Hebrews chapter 3, we find the first of Many appeals in this book for us to consider. This word consider could also be translated to, to contemplate. You know what it means to contemplate, right? To think carefully about, to analyze, to evaluate, to, to weigh something with the utmost care and caution, to receive something with the greatest sobriety and seriousness, We are to consider, we are to contemplate the truth of who Jesus Christ is. Now, brethren, let us consider briefly our second text for the purpose of introduction, and that is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, and let me read that again. and find grace to help in time of need. Now, why is this portion so important? Why is this portion significant? It's, a, it's a significant for two reasons also. First, it's significant because it produces or introduces a second type of appeal that is found throughout the book of Hebrews. And this type of appeal is one that we would expect to find in a sermon that is carefully applied to its audience or its readers. And that is the appeal for us to see Jesus not only as superior to all that was considered sacred and dear, but to see Jesus as what we need, to see Jesus as what we personally need, what we personally require as the people of God. And of course, what we need Given our fallen state, what we need given our total inability to make peace with God ourselves is the work of a high priest. That's the pressing need. Everyone must have the work of a high priest to have peace with God. In fact, this theme of the essential work of the high priesthood of God, of Christ, is presented throughout the book of Hebrews. And it shouldn't surprise us that... The superiority and uniqueness of Christ's high priesthood is mentioned to us again and again. In fact, you may get to the point before we're through with this epistle where you don't want to hear any more about the priesthood. You don't want to hear any more about the role of the high priest. But it is so absolutely critical that we understand why a high priest is is necessary and why Christ's high priesthood is so superior. For unlike human or earthly high priests, Jesus is a high priest who according to the writer of Hebrews has passed through the heavens. He's passed through the heavens and yet while he is divine in his person, while he's divine in his essence, he is also uniquely qualified to serve as our high priest because he has our very same humanity. He's just like us, took upon himself a human nature. He possessed that nature without sin. And because Jesus lived a a perfect human life, he is able to not only sympathize with our weakness, but he's able to give us grace and mercy to help in our time of need. No one else can do that. Others can suggest or claim to be able to help you. But they can't help you with what you really need in your relationship with God, and that is mercy and grace in a time of need. Needless to say, this is not merely a theological necessity, given who Jesus is, but from the writer's perspective here in our text, it is a, a practical reality. For given the fact that Jesus is a high priest, given the fact that he truly sympathizes with his people... We cannot help but receive his mercy and his grace when we need it. Jesus overflows with these virtues. Jesus overflows in his generosity and dispensing those graces to his people. And, of course, this is true not only with respect to Christ's high priesthood and priestly work, but it's also true of Christ's mediatorial work as our great prophet, and as our great king, as other parts of this book will attest to. For every single aspect of Christ's office's work and his work as mediator are being exercised to the fullest for his own glory and for the good of his people. And we will see this evident more and more as we progress in this series through the book, as this sermon about Christ unfolds before us. Then then secondly, this portion of Hebrews chapter 4 is highly significant. It's, It's worth studying carefully because it not only stresses how Christ's great sympathy and care is demonstrated for us, but it stresses our own spiritual duty to avail ourselves of his present help. Our duty to avail ourselves of his present help. For here in verse 14, the the writer makes an appeal to his readers. He makes an appeal to you and me to hold fast to our confession. To hold fast to our Confession, since we do have one who has passed through the heavens for us. And here in verse 16, we're instructed to draw near. Notice these are duties holding fast, drawing near with confidence. What an invitation this is. Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so we may receive mercy and find grace. For help from God comes in these two forms. In fact, it's worth stressing here that help from God does not primarily come through material goods. So if all you're praying for is material goods and you're receiving very few of it, you need to realize you're asking for the wrong things. God's help primarily comes through grace and mercy which is what you really need, what I, what I really need. And So we can see here in chapter 4 of the book of Hebrews that this is not merely a theological treatise which sets forth the works of Christ, but it is a practical treatise as well, and it appeals directly to us, as any good sermon does, to exercise our duties in light of what Christ has already done for us and in light of the intercessory work that Jesus Christ is still accomplishing now on our behalf. and Of course, as we proceed in this series throughout this book, we will address these practical appeals in some detail. Now, brethren, let us consider lastly our third text by way of introducing this book this morning. That is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Let me read it again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also set aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, doing what? Looking to Jesus. Remember, we were already talking about considering Jesus, right? We are already considering Jesus drawing near to Jesus. Now the writer is saying, looking to Jesus, the author or the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And why is this important? Why is this portion significant? It's significant also for two reasons. First, it's significant because this text ably summarizes the believer's worldview that is expressed throughout the book of Hebrews. In fact, this is one reason why the book of Hebrews is a very exciting and instructive book, because it will give you a worldview that nothing else will give you. It will help you to understand what happened in the past and what is happening now. It will help you understand that those who lived before Christ and who had faith in Christ did not believe and serve in vain. But all who truly believed and labored in real anticipation of God's promise of the Messiah lived and died being witnesses to Christ. In fact, this is the main point of Hebrews chapter 11. Everybody knows Hebrews chapter 11. That's the most popular chapter Of the book of Hebrews. But many people miss the main point. For the purpose of Hebrews chapter 11 is is not to showcase the incredible faith of men. It's not the hall of fame of faith where all the attention and praise goes to man. But rather, Hebrews chapter 11 is to demonstrate that God provided through redemptive history witnesses to his name witnesses to his name, that God gave faith to those witnesses, a faith that was centered in Jesus Christ. And therefore, the true significance and appeal of this book, when we come to Hebrews chapter 12, is not for us to look back to the faithful Old Testament saints and and try to imitate them, but rather to look in the same direction that they looked in, And what direction did the Old Testament saints look in? They looked in the direction of Christ, of Christ. And we need to run our race with the same Christward focus that they possess. Secondly, this text in Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 is significant because it reveals to us how we are to see Christ as we run the race that is set before us how we are to see Christ, and again, our preoccupation should not be on other runners, our preoccupation should not be on the race itself, our our preoccupation should not be on the obstacles that we will encounter, our preoccupation should not be upon our own weakness, but rather our main preoccupation in life and in the race should be on Christ who gives us the grace and strength we need to persevere. Why? Because Christ has already finished His own course. That's something that's often missed when considering these passages as well. There's a a significance in the fact that Christ has already finished His course. Because He's finished His course, you and I can finish ours. And he's now seated on the right hand of the throne of God. For it is the grace of Christ that enables us to lay aside every weight. It is the mercy and forgiveness of Christ that helps us to lay aside those sins that cling so closely to us. And needless to say, as we're, as we're looking to Christ, as the author of this book states that we should here in verse 2, we, we should see Christ in, in several ways. And again, we'll flesh this out more when we go through these passages some months from now. It'll take a while to get to Hebrews chapter 12, but we need to see Christ in several ways. And this is worth considering again this morning. We should see Christ as the founder of our faith. As the founder of our faith, meaning that Christ is not only our forerunner. He's not only the one who went before us, he's not only the one who opened the way of salvation for us through his own death and and resurrection, but he is the one who gives us the faith that justifies us before God. In fact, our faith is his gift to us. Our faith is the fruit of his redemptive work. Our faith is not the fruit of our work. Our faith is the fruit of his redemptive work. We have faith today because Jesus endured the cross. Jesus despised the shame for us. Secondly, we should see Jesus as the perfecter of our faith. The perfecter of our faith. The one who makes it perfect, meaning he is the one who sustains our faith. He is the one who brings our faith to completion. And because Jesus is the perfecter of our faith, our faith will not ultimately fail. He'll bring it to perfection. Of course, this is encouraging news as we run the race that is set before us. For while our faith may seem weak and frail at times, and let's admit, it does seem weak and frail at times. In fact, we may feel like bruised reeds and smoking flaxes, as Brother Chris read about from the Isaiah passage this morning in the reading of the law. There may be times when it seems like our lives are giving off very little light and very little heat. Nevertheless, Jesus is sustaining our faith. He is the one who straightens and strengthens the bending reed. He is the one who reignites the smoking flax or the smoking wick. He ensures that we will not flame out. Do you hear that? You're not going to flame out, and neither am I. You and I are not going to ultimately falter, because it's Jesus Christ who perfects our faith. And then thirdly, lastly, as we look to Jesus, He is now gloriously and victoriously exercising His rule and dominion. For not only did Jesus purchase victory for His people through His own endurance, through His own suffering, but He now sits, as you know, at the right hand of the throne of God, Hebrews 12 and verse 2. And no doubt, the thought of Jesus Christ enthroned, think about that for a moment, the thought of Jesus Christ enthroned, of him who once wore a crown of thorns, now wearing a victor's crown, should be a great encouragement for all of us. In fact, I I hope that your faith is like this, that you rejoice not just in what has happened for you, for your good, but you rejoice in what's happened to Christ for His good. For His good. For He who has gone before us, He who now lives for us, who suffered for us, is in glory. He is enjoying glory. May we obey this appeal here in verse 2 of Hebrews chapter 12 to meditate upon the victory of Christ and of His joys and glory. And so what do these three texts that I've selected, I could have selected a lot of different texts. This is a big epistle as you know. What are these three texts I've selected as a means of introducing this epistle tell us? What, why are they important? What do they preview? What do they preview? Because that's what I want to do this morning, just to give you a preview. They inform us that throughout the course of this series, we will be invited to do three things. Three things. In fact, I'm giving you in advance the answer to an important question later on in the series, and that is how should we respond? We should respond in three primary ways. This is it. First of all, we are invited... To consider Jesus. We are invited to consider Jesus, to weigh very carefully who he is. And I am curious this morning, is this something that you do often? Is this something that you've ever done? Is this something that you need to do more? To weigh carefully who Jesus is and to embrace the truth about him Whatever scripture reveals about him to be true and to see his absolute sovereignty and superiority over all, for as we read this epistle, we will see he is without equal. He is without comparison as our great prophet, priest, and king. And we'll talk about those offices, prophets, priest, and king. Secondly, we're invited to hold fast. We're invited to hold fast what we believe about him and to draw near with confidence. For he is able, as I said, to strengthen us despite our weakness. And we are exhorted to plea for his mercy and grace in our time of need. And there will be times, brethren, you can count on it, when you need to hold fast. There will be times when it seems like all you can do is just barely hold on. And yet the grace of God is at work in you, enabling you to hold fast. Then thirdly, we'll be invited as we progress through this series in the book of Hebrews to look to Jesus, to look to Jesus. And again, this is a forward-looking as well as a present-looking, to fix our eyes upon him to focus our attention on His work and not ours. This is so important. We spend far too much time focusing on ourselves. We're far too preoccupied with our own works and our failure to do what we're called to do rather than on Christ's work and what He's already accomplished. Far more attention and focus needs to go upon what Christ has done. And to delight in the portrait that we find in Scripture of Jesus victorious, of Jesus embracing and enjoying the joy that was set before Him. Notice those words, Jesus enjoying the joy that was set before Him. Jesus experienced great joy when He completed His work. It should bring a smile to our face, To picture in our minds what it must have been like for Jesus Christ to receive the joy of his Father's presence again, of Jesus reigning and ruling on the right hand of the throne of God. May God give us much grace as we impart on this important series. May we continue to run in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, our prophet, our priest, our king, and if we are If we are not believers yet, may the Spirit of God today or in this series do what only He can do. What only He can do. I can't do this. None of the preachers here in this room can do it. No human preacher except Christ and the Spirit can. And that is to show you the ugliness of your sin. The ugliness of your sin and your need for a Savior. But not only can he and will he show you the ugliness of your sin, but he will show you the beauty of Jesus Christ. The beauty of Jesus Christ as the Savior of sinners who will receive sinners like you and me just as we are and give us new life through believing. Indeed, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ this morning and you will be saved. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for the time that we've taken this morning to simply do an introduction to this book. And I know it's a little unusual for us to do an introduction. It's certainly not the typical type of exposition that we would do. It is different in emphasis. It is informational primarily, although I've tried to include elements that we need to know and to consider, but we would ask that you would use it, that you would use it in this way, Father, that you would use this introduction this morning to to pry our thoughts and our minds open, to allow room for the wonderful truths that we're about to hear. We're very soon, as we begin this series, we're going to be confronted with propositional sacred, powerful truth about the Lord Jesus Christ in the form of a sermon, a sermon based on a sermon, and we are confident that your Spirit is going to use it. We are confident that our lives can and will be transformed by what the Spirit alone can do. And so we would ask you to prepare our hearts even now to help us understand that we are about to embark on a very important mission, and that is understanding the book of Hebrews and making sure that we apply it properly to our own lives. Help us to do that for your own glory, for our good as your people. For we ask these things in Jesus' blessed name. Amen.